Hi, welcome to lucky episode 13 of... Hold on, I've got it here somewhere. Um, I know you know this. I wrote it down this time. I know you can do this. Oh, I can't wait. Astrid, help me out. It is greater, greater than code. I was so close. We'll do better next week. I'm also joined this morning by Sam Livingston Gray. Good morning, and I have a cold today, but uh, I'm not letting that stop me. And I would like to introduce our guest today, who is Audrey Eshright. Audrey is a writer, community organizer, and software developer based in Portland, Oregon. About eight years ago, she founded Caligator, which is an open-source community calendaring service and an amazing resource for finding nerdly stuff to do in Portland. And then, as if that wasn't enough, she co-founded Open Source Bridge, which is an annual conference for open-source citizens. These days, she's the editor and publisher of The Recompiler, which is a magazine about building better technology together. Audrey, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I think we have a couple of things to talk about in the show today. It should be pretty jam-packed, but um, our sort of standard demo is to get to know our guests before we dive into specifics. So, Audrey, what is your superpower and how did it develop? <laughs> uh, my superpower is that I keep things together when uh, things are not going well. That turns out to be really useful in community crises. Awesome. What's your background? It's easier for me to work backwards. Currently, I publish The Recompiler. It's a feminist hacker magazine. I started this almost two years ago now. Uh, It's been really awesome to work on. Before that, I worked in DevOps. For a while, I did some really hairy things involving uh, software installation and networking. Before that, I was a web and mobile developer for several years. Along the same time, I worked on Caligator, uh, which was a really grassroots community project to help people find what was going on in the local technology community. I was the original co-chair for Open Source Bridge, the conference that was mentioned. Because of Open Source Bridge, we founded a nonprofit called Sometown Syndicate. Sometown Syndicate is really involved in the idea of building inclusive and resilient technology communities in Portland uh, and beyond, we like to say. This is great. It's like five whys for your life. Sometimes Syndicate created the Citizen Code of Conduct, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. I helped write the Citizen Code of Conduct. And working on that through Open Source Bridge and through the Portland Ruby Brigade led me into more detailed work on incident response and community safety. Uh, I now do training for organizers on how community safety works, how to build community processes for handling that. But if we go back before that, I uh, had done some work in ops I did QA. <laughs> I uh, thought I wasn't going to be in the tech industry because I had had some really bad experiences. Before that, I got a degree in geography. And before that, I was a really nerdy kid who thought that it would be awesome if computers were small enough to fit in your pocket. They should work on that. That would be really cool. <laughs> I never had that much vision as a kid. I was just like, I want to do something with computers. I don't know. So um, I definitely had the privilege of having computers in the home at a young age. Did you get started with computers really, really early too? I did, yeah. So I have a grandfather who was a mechanical engineer and then a project manager. And he was interested in business computers and spreadsheets really early on. I also had an uncle who did a degree in computer science, and he was just finishing up when I was entering kindergarten. And somehow I managed to hit schools that actually had these computer lab funds, even if they weren't in higher income areas. And I just, yeah, I gravitated toward it. And uh, it wasn't until I got a little bit older that people started telling me that there were gender roles attached to this. So I kind of had some good early experiences that showed me that I could write simple programs and it was no big deal. So, Audrey, you mentioned that when you went to college, you got a degree in, was it geology? Geography. Geography. Did you know when you were going into college that you wanted to have a career in tech or were you actually thinking about something else at the time? I was really focused on a career in tech. I wanted to do computer engineering and chip design. And that idea lasted less than my first year. What changed your mind? I didn't feel welcome, even sort of vaguely. This was in the late 90s and in Seattle. And there was a lot of pressure funneling people toward Microsoft And the department felt that the best way to deal with the high demand for that, because, you know, everyone was hearing these are good jobs, they pay well, uh, was to become as tightly exclusive as possible to make the entry process really hard on people and to carry this idea that, you know, you really have to prove you're good enough. And I just noped out of that. (laughs) I, I didn't want to be there. It's like they're trying to protect their department, but they have this unfortunate knock on effect on everything else. I mean, I thought I wasn't tough enough for it. 
you know, and I think uh, I'm just really glad I had enough of a sense of self-preservation that I stopped there because I ended up with a lot of health problems in college. Anyhow, it would have just not been possible for me to do that. I'm just interested to know what kind of ways did they try to make it really hard to make people prove that they were good enough? Uh, there were these weed out classes you had to take. There were two quarters of intro to computing. And actually, it's interesting. The first quarter I took it and they had a special section for people who had had some experience with programming and computers before. And that was more welcoming than the second quarter where we were just kind of all thrown into this big bucket together. And it was like huge class sections. I didn't think the TA ever wanted to talk to me. And I was already exhausted at that point. It was really early class, just somewhere mid-quarter. I thought, you know, they're not telling me anything that says that I belong here. They're showing me all the ways that I don't, right? Like, I don't have the right sleep schedule, and I don't have the right motivation, and I'm not supposed to be in it for the money, but I absolutely needed the money. <laughs> I came from a really low-income background. Yeah, it was it was also little things that added up. Yeah, I understand that. I have similar experience with um, natural science courses where they make you feel like, unless you're a genius already, you shouldn't be here. So geography, um, I'm wondering if maybe switching to geography felt like maybe a second choice. And I don't know, is that right? And I'm also curious, like what we could learn from your experience in geography, because I think of it as this, you know, when I was a kid, if you told me geography was a thing you could study, I'd be like, really, you, you make maps, that's it, right? But, you know, I've come to learn since that there's a lot more to it than that. You know, I only have the vaguest idea. So what's that about? So what ended up happening is that one of my friends told me that there was this really great cartography class that I could take. And that turned out to be um, one of the entry points into the department. I think I took like four or five classes toward the major before I actually committed to it. I was just like, no, I'm not going to do this. I mean, I'll do oceanography. I'll do I'll do some other science. Uh, <laughs> you know, so really a love of maps got me in the door. But the thing that has helped me build the career that I have is that I started studying economic geography and social geography, which are these other subfields that look at the role of place. If sociology just kind of looks at the, the big picture and the groups, uh, geography says, well, what does place have to do with that, those social systems? Or if in economics you study macro and uh, microeconomics and these different forces, then in economic geography, you say, well, what's the difference between income in Los Angeles and income in Portland? And you start looking for ways to answer those questions, both in terms of research and in terms of theory. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Did that inform your interest in social justice? It tied into it, definitely. I did some some other stuff in college with a group, um, a partner group between Seattle and El Salvador. And the economic geography stuff that I was studying at the time was really helpful with that. But, you know, the other place that my social justice interest comes from is religious, actually. I did uh, grow up in uh, fairly social justice oriented religious communities. And that also gave me a framework for looking at things. So, you know, I can kind of see how I got here where I am. If I go, well, you know, social justice, religious background and degree in geography and childhood interest in computers that I finally acted on as, you know, later in my 20s, then yes, that's my career right there. After college, what was it that got you back into tech? Uh, money. <laughs> really, truly. Really. Uh, so this kind of explains a lot of it. So the timeline is that I went into college during the dot-com boom and I came out during the recession. At that point, it didn't matter what technical skills I had. You know, I had office skills. I had some technical skills. I'd done GIS. So I could have gone toward things like uh, city planning. And I was still really sick of tech people, but I couldn't find stable work that paid me enough that was full time. And I started thinking, well, I'm better with computers than anyone else in this office. You know, what can I do there? I, I mean, I was already doing like all of these spreadsheet tricks. I had a, uh, a job in an accounting department. <laughs> and I was already doing these things where I was like exporting data from their custom database uh, interface and then importing it back into Excel and nobody could follow what I was doing. I thought, oh, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I should see what kind of tech jobs are out there. Did you run into the same problems of not being made to feel welcome when you entered the tech workforce? It was actually a little bit better for a while there because one of the things that I used to kind of get back up to speed was this local place called Free Geek. I started doing volunteer shifts there. They do um, recycling, electronics recycling and educational programs, uh, one of which was a build program. So you take 
the computer parts that they have dissected from all these donated office computers and you build new machines to a spec. And it's really a great way to get hands-on experience with computer hardware. And so I kind of, I took that. There was a lot of validation and configuration. And I found myself a QA job that also had a hardware component that, you know, was actually an entry-level job. How did that lead you to the idea of the recompiler? There's a couple of practices that I've used to tell me what to do next. One of them is just to keep asking what's missing here. And I realized that I was seeing so much of the diversity conversation in tech that focused on making people from marginalized groups explain what was going on and explain why we need to be here and what our value is. And I thought, what if we could just take that for granted? Like if we took that for granted, what would I make? And I thought, well, what I'd make is a publication where we talk about technology and our technology skills and what we want to teach people. And we don't have to justify those articles being written by people that aren't young, straight white men. And, take the yeah. emotional labor out of the equation. Yeah. You know, and to, to say like, you know, we're welcome here. We're accepted here. You don't have to prove anything. And that's freed up writers to talk about, you know, what happens when they accept that, too. Um, our games issue really got into some of those feelings about whether you were good enough to be in games, whether you were allowed to play games and to like the games that you like. And that absolutely informed people's work. And the thing that I love about that is that, you know, as a young-ish, straight-ish white man, I read some of those articles in the recompiler and I thought, wow, these people are way more hardcore than I will ever be. <laughs> so that was really inspiring and, and uh, eye-opening. Yeah, gatekeeping has these really, really funny effects. So recompiler, as I understand it, focuses on a given topic for each issue. What made you decide to focus on topics as opposed to being like a general purpose um, technology publication? It's uh, just an easy way for me to organize the ideas that we can do. And uh, we haven't always stuck to the topic really closely. Like, I think we had security and disability hacking in the same issue because those were some great articles that people had pitched to be. And, you know, and we'll probably do more of that kind of thing where there's like this and that. Do they go together? <laughs> you know, they're both relevant to our audience. But because I'm really interested in the breadth of these topics, having topical themes lets me kind of do that same thing of like, what's every question that I can ask about data? Let's see if we can find ways to answer that. What's every question I can ask about the technical impact of surveillance, right? Things like that, you know, just kind of give me a framework to do the rest of the work around. So Audrey, what are some of the more recent projects that you've been working on with Recompiler? Uh, so we did a successful Kickstarter for a book um, in September called The Responsible Communication Style Guide. And its focus is on helping people in technology use language that's uh, welcoming and inclusive. So helping people understand why you might not want to talk about blacklisting and whitelisting something, or why when you talk about your replication, you want to use leader and follower. <laughs> and just getting into some of those kinds of terms and those uh, like an intersectional framework around the way we talk about users of technology, the way we talk about any kind of user-facing information documentation that's internal or external uh, marketing messages, you know, so giving people a resource guide for that. And that has just, you know, we were like, this book doesn't exist. We need this book to anyhow. Thursday Brom, who's the editor for this, had kind of come to me with this idea a while ago. And, and we just started seeing this fall how language was really so important to how people are being excluded now, too. It's feeling like even more of a hot, important thing for us to be working on. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting my hands on my copy of that. Yeah, and we're just starting to get in the first uh, pieces from the editors and writers. So it, there's always a really magical moment on the magazine when all of the articles come back. Usually the deadlines all fall within a week or two of each other. And there's always this magic moment when I start reading them and I go, oh, they all fit together. And everyone's got something really special to share that I just hadn't thought about. And I have a feeling that as we get the content for the book, it's going to feel that way, too. You mentioned politics. How does that impact the work that you do with Recompiler, either in the past or in the present and future? Well, um, the most direct one is that because I've been focused on anti-oppression work in tech, 
I've been asking, you know, what can the recompiler do as an educational resource that will help people's safety right now, uh, will help people build community responses that are effective. And so the biggest impact that this has had is that I threw out my concept for the issue that has an open call right now. I uh, threw out all the topics I had in mind and I said, we're just going to come back to security again. You know, I realized we already did a security issue. But we're going to talk about it again, and we're going to talk about this um, from a really focused angle of who's most vulnerable and what do we do to help. I know a lot of people are feeling very vulnerable right now with a lot of the um, advances that have been made over the past eight years looking like they're going to be rolled back. Yeah, it's really a scary time for a lot of people in my life. And I'm really grateful that a lot of what I can contribute is not just general support, but a sense of what the practices and processes are that we need to start helping people. I feel like all the community organizing that I did to build Caligator has turned, I mean, maybe it's a practice run, you know, working on Caligator and then working on Open Source Bridge. These all taught me a lot of skills around community organizing and around bringing people together on a shared cause that feel very relevant and useful for me now. Can you tell us a little more about Caligator and how it got started? Yeah. What you see if you go to Caligator.org right now is a little green and white website that has a listing of tech events. There are you know, anywhere from three to five to 10 events happening on any given day. Um, and this is just the Portland metro area. What's actually happening behind the scenes is that it's an open source Rails project set up as a platform. So unfortunately, it, it still requires a little bit of technical knowledge, but it can conceivably be deployed for any community that has shared events information that they want to present. The way that it got built is that I had been talking to people in the user group community, which at one point I think was about four groups. You know, I, there was like a Perl group and a Ruby group and a PHP group. And there had been a MySQL user group, and I hadn't heard anything about them forever. And there was the Portland Access user group, but they didn't talk to anybody else. And Yeah, so there's a very small set of things. And what was just hilarious to me is that nobody knew what was happening. And, you know, it was such a small community. And yet I would talk to people and they go, oh, there's a Pearl group? <laughs> <laughs> and if you, you know, it helped that a few of them were meeting at Free Geek, and so at least you could check the calendar there. You know, I just started asking questions about that, like, okay, so what user groups are in town? What if we put it on a wiki? We had our first Portland bar camp in 2007, and I had just quit a job and found myself with a lot of free time to help organize it. I think the month before, so that I had something to show off, I just threw together this wiki and I said, all right, I'm just going to list every user group I can find. I'm going to sit here on Google, search for everything, catalog it. That'll be useful, right? <laughs> and nobody else had done it. So yeah, it was useful. And so people said, well, what we really need is we need to know when those meetings are happening. Like, maybe it'd be good to have it on the calendar. And I said, okay, fine, I'll create a Google calendar. And, you know, the people that were at that unconference session, I gave them access. And somebody else set up a mailing list called PDX Groups that was for user group organizers. And I, I asked, well, can we give everybody on the PDX groups list access to the calendar? Like, I don't want to update their events. Can't they just update their own events? And the answer was no. <laughs> there was, it was not actually possible. I don't think you can yet do that easily with Google Calendar, probably because they think you live in an office where everyone's already got permission, and, <laughs> you know, uh, which lots of people do. It just, it didn't match what we needed. And so we kind of did this for most of a year. And I thought, well, we're software developers. We're in a, you know, we're in sort of the open source world. What if I just emailed everyone I've talked to about this, which is about 30 people? What if I just sent them all an email and I said, you're invited to a code sprint? <laughs> I mean, that's what happened. You know, like I sat there on Google Code and I made a repository. That's how Caligator got named, that I had to have a repository name that day. And what, what does the name mean? It's just a calendar aggregator. But then we could have like an alligator mascot. <laughs> But so one of the original core team members um, was named Egal, and he sent me this detailed multi-page spec a couple weeks before the meeting. And we didn't actually, well, no, it's funny. We did come back around a lot of the things with the spec, but what we originally built was a page that had uh, like a really basic Rails scaffold and you could create an event. And then, oh, events happen someplace, so you could create a venue. That's really actually like the main framework of the code even still. You know, there's all of these other things that do iCal and they import and they export. 
but uh, at its heart, there's just two models and two main controllers. <laughs> Every two weeks, we had a code sprint that went all the way into the summer. Egal did the hosting. That was really important. Reed Beals did the design. But we still had a couple of dozen people that were showing up every other week at our local co-working space that a lot of things were happening at the time. And again, I mean, it just it taught me so much about building software and about working with people and about bringing people together. And I feel so lucky that I got to do something like that and that it's still in use. It's still successful. There's always more we could do. Like, I would really love to be doing a lot more mentoring of new contributors, but it's there. I, I mean, I can ignore it for a month and it's still there <laughs> you know that's one of the secondary things that i love about caligator i mean the primary thing i love about caligator is if i'm bored i can go and look at it and go oh wow that looks really neat i should do that but uh i love that you built this thing i mean i went to one of the first one or two code sprints and then i sort of got sucked into school and other things but i love that it's still going i love that the repo is still active i love that there are people actively inviting newbies to come and contribute to this ongoing living breathing software project and it has uh you know i haven't looked in on it myself recently but it still has the potential to be a really nice welcoming space which is great it's everything i love about portland right there <laughs> Yeah, you know, I wonder, this is back to the geography degree, though. Could it have been built somewhere else? Some of Portland's disadvantages turned out to really work in our favor. At the time, uh, there wasn't a lot of funding for anything. I mean, like, the user group scene had no money. <laughs> no money in it. You know, it was all pretty scrappy. But it meant that there wasn't any competition, that, you know, people would come to the Coast sometimes and ask me, so how are you going to monetize this? And I just go, who cares? We have software. You know, that's probably not quite the answer I'd give now, but there was just a lot of freedom to go do it. And a lot of technical talent here already to draw on, which was really nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I had kind of absorbed the Agile Manifesto, and so I really wanted to work from that. But uh, with uh, people like Ward Cunningham in Portland, I mean, it, that was the environment, too. I didn't have to force it on anybody. I just had to remind them that we were really truly going to do the simplest thing that could possibly work and not the next thing and not the thing after that. <laughs> you know, like we were going to start with a simple thing. And that was a lot of my job too, just to keep bringing people back to that. Sort of ties back into something you said at the beginning about your superpower of keeping things in control and keeping things moving uh, amidst lots of chaos. Yeah. I've, I've had a lot of opportunity to practice that. So Audrey, it seems like one of the ways that you found to combat some of the bias and non-diversity in tech is to volunteer and to do community organizing. So what are some of the things that you've learned from those experiences that you wish could be more broadly applied to the tech community? So I think that a lot of people in tech go for the technological solution first and ask what software we can build. And what has been most successful in my experience is those one-on-one -on -one conversations that I, everything that I've done has started from. You end up with very different answers when you sit down with people and you ask, what's going on? What do you see? Do you know of a resource for user groups in Portland? I don't know of a resource for user groups in Portland. You you just come to uh, very different ways of doing things. And I, uh, I think it's funny because it's so neat for me now. But any time I get out there and I start meeting new people, I end up explaining that again. <laughs> you know, I end up teaching this over and over again. And I mean, I would agree completely that the way that I have made things welcoming is by building spaces. I mean, this is kind of 10 years running my involvement in first user group community and in open source. There was a, a point about five years in where I went, oh, I survived here because I made it happen. I made spaces where I could be welcome. And those were spaces that other people could be welcome. And I really focused on how I could use the kinds of privileges that I did have to stretch that further, you know? I mean, if I'm this uh, gender conforming, then how can I make it easier for people who are less gender conforming? Even looking at what do I wear to conferences, how does that make things more or less comfortable for other people? That's interesting. Can you expand on that a little more? Well, so like in politics, there's this idea of the Overton window, right? That you can stretch people's bounds of what they think is normal and reasonable. And I think for social cues and social norms, that's really the case. And unfortunately, we mostly see it when it's used negatively. But um, there's a lot of positivity, too, in that once you start showing, you know, if you start making a place for yourself and insist on it, there are both people that respond to that. They go, oh, well, you know, I like you. I'm OK with you. What if people like you are here? But, you know, there's just a couple of different directions that that can operate. 
at the risk of being the cis white guy who brings this up, it occurs to me that Stonewall was perhaps an example of that, of some people saying, this is our space, this is important to us, and bringing that to the forefront and dragging the Overton window quite a bit off to the left over the years. Yeah, I would say that in gay visibility, right, in like LGBTQ, etc. <laughs> acronym, you know, in terms of that visibility, that's absolutely part of what's happened. Or, you know, I noticed it on this really funny level in Portland, which is that like half the kids have rainbow hair. And when I was in high school, I dyed my hair purple. And that was a really extreme thing to do. You know, and I grew <laughs> up in Portland. So, you know, like it was a big deal that I dyed my hair purple, only like really punk kids and really, you know, I, I didn't have like a bad kid reputation. But that was a thing that People wondered, well, if we go to church and you have purple hair, is that going to be okay? Uh, <laughs> and now every kid in Portland has, you know, funky dyed hair and it's really great. So it, it shows up in lots of little ways like that, too. So one thing that I find really interesting and that I've noticed that a lot of other people find really sort of novel and surprising and uh, then eventually refreshing about Open Source Bridge is some of the ways that you make that space uh, much more radically accessible than I think a lot of other spaces that people have been in. Like, And some of that is just with blue painters tape on the floor, right? You want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. You know, there's really a, kind of a fun thing that's happened with that where every event that I've gone to and other open source bridge organizers have gone to, we've looked at what people were bringing to that in terms of accessibility. So the blue tape marks off walking lanes so that people have a place to stand and people have a place to walk. And especially if you use any kind of a mobility device, that's really key because otherwise you sit there and you yell at people because you're going to run over their toes and they're blocking your access. But we didn't invent that. We got that from AdaCamp, and AdaCamp, I think, got that from Wiscon. And so there's just a lot of these practices that have aggregated down to different events. And I love that people come to Open Source Bridge. It's the first time they've seen that, and they take that on to other events. You know, so if we're doing blue tape and we're doing food labeling, you know, like really inclusive food labeling, if we do those things, UltraConf has taken that even further and started making sure that there's sex in the areas. So if you have a wheelchair, you can sit next to your friends and making sure that there's always captioning and all gender restrooms. And we've taken the all gender restroom thing back, you know, to use in our space, which is actually sometimes a little challenging because Open Source Bridge happens in a shared space. So we can't just relabel everything and not impact somebody. We have to talk to them about it. So, yeah, I love that there's this there's shared practices going on. We're not all just trying to come up with these individual answers. We're bringing them back to each of our communities. Open Source Bridge happens for the last five years. We've been having it at the First Unitarian Church in downtown Portland. And it means that the keynotes happen in the sanctuary where they have a pipe organ. And that's been a lot of fun. You know, you get the pipe organist playing Beyonce and we're all very excited. And video game music. That's another big request. Right. Yeah. I remember that. The first time we were in there, we didn't realize that there was an organ. <laughs> there was, what, what are we doing? Why did it's we... hard to miss. It's a big organ. <laughs> I know. No, it just it didn't come up until we were all sitting there and going, why don't we have an organist? We are missing out on this opportunity. And so, you know, it seemed a little odd, I guess, for people to be working at a church like that. But it turns out that First Unitarian's mission and Open Source Bridge's mission overlap really closely. You know, they're very much focused on welcoming communities and organizing and uh, creating safer spaces for people. And they looked at what Open Source Bridge was doing and they said, well, this is great. <laughs> this is exactly what we want our space to be used for. It wasn't just about the technology part of it. So earlier you had talked about how religion informs some of your social justice I guess, like impetus to do something because you grew up in a religious community and that we don't talk about it in tech. Mm -hmm. And it's a weird thing that we don't talk about it because it, for some people, it is a huge part of their life, just like how they feel about technology. And I understand other people may have had like really bad experiences. And so they want to divorce themselves mm -hmm. from it. But like for me, I grew up in a religious community and then I went to a university that was a religious university. And so I've seen, you know, both sides of that whole, it can be really scary because if you don't fit in, then you're just completely kicked out. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, when you find other groups that have like a religious undertone, but they're welcoming, it can be the thing that saves people. And I find that with technology, it can be such a challenging experience, even if you take away some of the issues of diversity and inclusion, but just trying to be better can be very mentally challenging, that it would 
be great to have more of a union between what people need to be more spiritually taken care of in addition to what they need to grow as a person mm-hmm. and grow as a technologist. And I kind of wanted you to uh, talk a little bit more about like how the religion and the social justice ties together for you because you use technology as like the thing that you create to try to do something about those things, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I want to speak a little bit to why tech approaches this this way. I think it's part of those um, geek fallacies around uh, logic and emotion and how we are all rational beings and the whiteness of tech, honestly, that it combines into this set of things where everyone is supposed to be like a capitalist skeptic. And it's really great if you could be a card-carrying atheist. It creates this culture where you don't talk about feelings, and that's tied to not talking about religion. You know, spirituality and feelings absolutely go together, right? You know, you're talking about things that you feel, not things mm-hmm. that you necessarily can, like, put out there on the table and show people. And so, yeah, like, geek culture really has rejected that. But I think that's also a way that it is less welcoming to people, you know, to not reflect that aspect of people's experiences. You know, I don't think that you have to be religious in a formal sense to have a spiritual Mm -hmm. element in your life. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I take a weekly yoga class and my yoga instructor um, has studied Buddhism. And, you know, that's not the only thing that informs her class. But she just has this focus on our sense of connection with ourselves and the other people in the room and in something greater than ourselves out there in the world. And she says, you know, that could be the ocean, that could be nature, that could be your pets, your loving relationship with your pets. And I mean, I appreciate that her practice gets just out into that, you know, that it, it doesn't have to be this one narrow specific way of understanding it. I was a Unitarian. Well, I attended a Unitarian church for many years when my daughter was younger here in um, the Chicago area. I had the privilege of um, actually being on the board for the building. It was an historic building designed by Frank Lloyd Wright called Unity Temple. And one of the things I loved about Unitarian philosophy and the Unitarian approach to spirituality is that it it drew from a variety of people's experiences, combined them in a really interesting way, and was really about our connections to each other and our connections to the notion of something greater than ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to the extent that I've interacted with Unitarianism, I really appreciate that aspect of it. I was actually pretty excited. I had the opportunity to speak at Westbridge um, a couple of years ago now, and I was excited when I found out it was going to be held in a Unitarian church because Unity Temple is designed such that this was inspired, I think, by the meeting houses of the Society of Friends. Um, it was designed such that no matter where you sat in the sanctuary, you were equidistant to the pulpit. So I was kind of hoping for that same kind of physical space arrangement at the Unitarian Church in Portland, because I think it it emphasizes that we are all equal and we're all equidistant from um, each other and from the ideas that are being discussed. But it was just a big auditorium, but I think it still worked anyway. Yeah. And so much of just what you bring to your use of the space can be reflected in that. You know, our, our intention for how we how we use the sanctuary, what we're there to do, we're, you know, people come to be really supportive of those keynote speakers, right? Like the conference doesn't have a culture of tearing people down or looking for the holes in their argument. Um, it has this really supportive, caring culture. And so, you know, we all come together in the sanctuary and, and we convene, you know, in religion, you convene in tech conferences, you convene. But to convene with intention, I think it just takes it a little bit further into that um, spiritual area. Definitely. So we'd like to take a moment to uh, thank another one of our supporters on Patreon, who is Chris Sass. Uh, Chris is a Ruby developer living and working in beautiful Hawaii. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with Chris for a year and a half now, and in addition to his considerable technical skills, I've benefited from his kind demeanor and his willingness to schlep his stand-up paddleboards up to the other side of the island just because I was there on a weekend. Uh, thank you for that and for supporting us in this show, Chris. And if you'd like to support us, you can uh, visit us at uh, patreon.com slash greater than code and uh, sign up. Any amount that you give us will uh, get you into our listener-only Slack. So, Audrey, you talked about organizing. You organized Caligator in the effort behind making that a reality. And you are one of the organizers for OS Bridge. Um, what are some of the other ways that as tech workers we can organize to do some social good? 
the funny combination of um, technology and geography degree that I was telling you about before um, led me into something similar to Lauren's uh, talk pay, hashtag Lauren Voswinkle, which is that I started collecting salary information around Portland and programmers. This was a, a few years ago now. I've learned that there's a lack of conversation happening between a lot of people working in tech about working environments, about pay, about what we get asked to do at work, about on-call processes. So part of where I've taken this community organizing is also toward trying to raise awareness of the opportunities that we have for worker organizing, that there, there tends to be kind of this funny disconnect where people endure whatever happens at work, and then they go off and they recover from that. And they recover, you know, in our, our communities, our technical communities included. And now we're seeing this discussion happening around burnout in open source. That's a labor issue. You know, uh, we're seeing conversations happen with so many code school graduates coming into the industry, you know, about pay, about compensation, about what to expect, about training. Those are labor topics. And so I've been uh, trying to invite people to start having conversations about that with their coworkers, about, you know, with their friends and to like Lauren did with the talk pay thing to just ask people really basic questions. You know, I mean, maybe you don't feel comfortable yet starting off with. So we have the same job title. What do they pay you? <laughs> but you can work into that. I'm surprised how much people in the work environments I've been in, people talk about everything that they don't like and then they don't do anything. And I mean, I think that there's a disconnect again where tech workers don't want to think about this as work, but you get paid. You don't, you know, like most people won't show up to their company if they don't get a paycheck. Uh, there have always been those few startup employees that like their paychecks start bouncing and they keep showing up. But most people show up because they get paid. Yeah. In the 90s, pre-recession, um, I was involved with a lot of efforts to try and unionize tech workers and everyone was doing so well and making so much money, they didn't see a need for organizing. I'm an anarchist at heart, and I'm really inspired by the early days of the labor movement um, in the 20s and 30s, which coincided with a lot of thinking about political structures and economic structures and the notions of justice and injustice um, in the workplace and how we would deal with them. And those labor organizers were you know, very active and very goal-driven and very well-organized and developed a lot of tactics that resulted in some great things like the eight-hour workday and the five-hour workweek and workers' compensation and a lot of those other issues. And it seems like we've stopped talking about those things. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever heard people say that tech is the last middle-class job, but I think that has a big influence on that, that there, there's kind of this gap between um, what we think of as like working class or blue collar work and the, you know, the actual industrial nature of programming, right? Resistance to unions, I think, comes from not connecting the work that people are doing to those histories and not remembering those organizing histories, right? You know, how did how did we get the eight hour workday? There were a lot of steps. And those steps started with not just, well, here's how I would describe the cycle that I've seen happening at tech companies. People work really hard. They try to make change. They can't make change. They get burned out. They have these lengthy conversations over beer with all their coworkers. Everybody complains about the same thing. And complaining's fine. That's actually, that's a really good starting point. But what happens is that everybody drinks enough beer and they get just enough vacation. They get enough, just enough downtime that they go back to accepting how things are. Or they get another job and start the cycle somewhere else. Or Yeah, exactly. Because we have a lot of mobility, too. Yeah. No, I mean, people people do like crank through that cycle a couple of times at different places. And if you are more marginalized and less privileged, maybe you don't make it through as many cycles of that. You know, you don't make it through as many before you decide that you've had enough or you, you actually can't find that next job. Audrey, have you heard about a project called Distributed Denial of Women? Yes, I have. Um, I think that's something you started. Yeah, the idea is to be inspired by those early labor organizers and actually take a day, February 23rd, for women in non-binary tech to do a general strike to call attention to um, injustice and inequity in the tech workforce. Do you have thoughts on that that you'd like to share? You know, I would say that strikes are the most difficult thing to pull off. I mean, I love the idea and the intent behind it, but I think there are so many steps that go before that in my experience, uh, before a general strike can really occur. 
I'd be really interested in hearing more about the kind of like local participation that's happening to build that. One of the things that I was curious about with the intent of the distributed denial of women is that in my experience, if I don't show up for a meeting, if I don't show up for a day, people just make decisions without me. And so I'm interested in how the distributed denial can still build visibility because I think that visibility is a way that women and, you know, not men in tech suffer. I'm doing a lot of work to try and reach out to other groups who are working on issues like this. Recently, a conglomerate of social justice in tech organizations in Latin America came together to discuss the idea. And some groups are organizing at the local level to not just become invisible for a day, but become hyper visible for the day. The idea is that when your presence is not felt, when you're not doing the unpaid emotional labor, when you're not doing the diversity work at your company as the token diverse person, that lack will be noticed. But to sort of support that idea, a lot of local groups are organizing events where they will come together as a group and say, hey, we are all in tech. We are all women. We are all non-binary people. And these sorts of things are important to us. And by appearing in public as a group, or organizing events as a group, they're trying to call attention to the fact that we exist and we're playing a valuable role. And visibility is a really important thing. And it's there's sort of a dance between not showing up to work, but showing up to other things to increase the visibility and increase awareness of just the sheer number of people who are doing really, really critical work in this field who are marginalized and who do, do suffer from injustice and inequalities in the workplace and in the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. I'll be um, really interested to see uh, what kinds of things people do for that. Uh, definitely. I mean, the kinds of things that I've participated in have been like our local May Day uh, rallies. You know, on May 1st, it's the International Workers' Day and very few tech workers participate in that even. So all of our communities have these interesting points to connect to. Part of what I've really focused on talking to people is just to show that those connections are possible. If step one is to accept that you're a worker, uh, step two is to go connect <laughs> with other workers. You know, there's a couple of different strike actions going on, right? There's the general strike for January 20th. And I haven't seen a lot of discussion about that in tech, but I think that's one of the most powerful things that everyone could choose to participate in. There is not a modern general strike in the United States to look at. That's the first I've heard of it, and I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I tell people the same things over and over again in different groups because this information doesn't get out. There is a general strike for January 20th and a general strike means not just that you don't go to work, but you don't, you don't shop, uh, not just by nothing day, the day after Thanksgiving, um, which by the way, Black Lives Matter groups have turned that into a Black Friday event, which is really amazing. Cool. But a general strike, you know, it's, it's, we stop everything so that we can protest. I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's just all of these really interesting opportunities for people to practice that right now by being on here and by talking to you and all this. I hope that I can also help push people toward that and some awareness of that because so much of what you can do right now is just show up, just find one of these things and show up. So I hear what you're saying and how important it is. And I agree, but I also feel the fear of, okay, what if I'm the only one? So like going back to like what you first started out talking about was saying, hey, you and I, we have the same job title. What are you making? That feels like the scariest conversation in the world because it seems like there's not a lot of people who want to have that conversation. People tend to get really defensive about, you know, well, why, do you, why are you asking me about money? Because money seems to be a very sensitive thing for many, many people. So given that we don't have a very active consciousness about thinking about yourself as a worker, understanding your rights as a person who labors, how can you start those things in your own little communities without, you know, alienating people? There's a way that privilege plays into this, right? Uh, more senior employees have a lot more privilege in terms of asking tough questions at their companies and starting those hard conversations. I think if you think that you're making more than your coworkers, maybe you shouldn't ask them what they make. You should offer your own information. Uh, maybe, you know, if you look at it and you think, well, I don't need anything because I'm really comfortable. Maybe telling other people just what your situation actually is, that can have a big influence too. You know, the number of times that women have filed 
unequal pay complaints because somebody finally let them in on what the spreadsheet said about what people were making. Mm. That's huge, you know. So there's a role for people to use their privilege to really facilitate that. So anybody who's listening and they think, well, I don't have that yet. Okay, you can ask really casual questions. You know, I don't expect everybody to be as persnickety as I am, but you can at least ask like, so what's going on there? You know, how does your manager treat you? Do you complain, you know, or you hear complaints like, well, how do you feel about our on-call schedule? Mm. You can get you can get a lot of places with that. But then also as an organizer, what I do is I look at people's vulnerabilities and I ask, what can we do to support them as a community? So if somebody isn't asking questions because they think they're going to get fired, I can tell them that there are legal protections. You know, that doesn't stop you from getting fired, but it does give you some recourse their legal protections for a lot of these conversations. I can tell them that I might help them meet somebody else who can give them some support inside their organization or a similar one. You know, uh, now that I'm out of the programming workforce, for the most part, I I don't have anything to burn. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I can help facilitate those conversations. I can also ask about like material things, you know, like I'm looking at ways that I can support people through periods of joblessness if we hit another really bad recession. Right. Mm. That's the thing that unions have classically done is uh, to put together support and strike funds. You know, uh, if people lose pay because they strike, then you put together funds to help pay for that. I mean, this is goes back all the way into American labor history. Right. Fight for 15 is this. It's not really um, just a union movement. It doesn't involve people signing union cards or becoming union members necessarily. But it's a movement to get fast food workers a standard $15 an hour pay. And the way that it's built up over the last couple of years has started with just individual walkouts. And and this is part of why I think it's a good framework to look at, because it starts with just a couple of sets of McDonald's workers all walking out on the job one day, right? And using their collective power to do that. But it's, it's grown into these really big organized events with uh, strikes and picketing and petitioning, right? Um, you have to have something that you're negotiating over. And we think about our vulnerability as workers doing this, but fast food workers are about as vulnerable as you get. You know, there are a couple of jobs that are maybe as poorly paid and more dangerous, but, you know, it, it's the most precarious kind of work that people have, right? You can be fired for anything. You end up working multiple places. They're not good paying jobs. They're not supportive jobs. Not full time, not offering benefits. Mm hmm. This is purely an anecdote, but I talked to somebody once uh, who said that, uh, you know, this is a woman who was working as a professional dominatrix, and she said that the one time that she had had a job in food service, she f- had never felt more humiliated, and she would rather do sex work than, than work in food service. Yeah. So doing food service in high school told me that I wanted to work in an office, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the moment that I could get hired for clerical work, I did it. Turns out you have to be 18. And so I think if fast food workers can handle this, then surely tech workers can also live with that vulnerability. But I mean, there is this gap between what you think you have to lose. I worry that in tech, the way that these are the last middle class jobs, that that isn't permanent, right? There's no way to pour more people into an industry and have the pay rate stay the same. History just doesn't bear that out. And I worry that things are going to get a lot worse before people are willing to mobilize. Yeah, there's a whole other conversation there about the changing nature of work. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to nod at it, that labor automation affects every industry and it takes jobs away from every industry. And I mean, back to that sort of care of communities, if we're not talking now about how we care for people when there are no jobs, it's going to hit us sooner than we think. It really makes me appreciate people like you, Audrey, who have the power to bring together communities of people who are aware of these issues and are interested in spreading awareness of those issues around and organizing for doing some social good. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate people like you. Thank you. And I feel like it's been a long, hard process to get even this far. So before we wrap up the call, we like to end every show with a reflection section, which is just a chance for us to talk about what we're going to take away from this. And uh, if we have any calls to action, we can challenge our listeners with those. Astrid, it sounds like you'd like to go first. Go for it. So one of the things that I got out of this, which was actually quite early on, was when you said, Audrey, that you think about what's missing here and how you can fill that gap. And by doing that, not only are you 
helping yourself feel a little more comfortable and giving space for yourself, but you're also making space for others. I think the thing that um, I was most interested in that you said, Audrey, and that's going to stick with me for a while, it's um, an obvious truth. Um, it was obvious as soon as I heard it. It was not obvious before I heard it. And that is that tech workers are workers and tech workers face the same sort of challenges that workers in other industries have. Um, we have greater privileges in the form of salaries and mobility and things like that, but those are ephemeral. And that we, I think, I think there's a sort of elitism in tech work. We don't consider ourselves laborers. We don't consider ourselves workers and that we hold that difference in mind to our own detriment. So I'll definitely be thinking about ways that we can sort of tie back into a collective identity and um, see how that informs my work. Segwaying from that, I feel like we also have this ideal in technology of uh, the sort of rugged individualism. Not only do we want to be logical, we also uh, we want to solve everything ourselves. This conversation has really reminded me a lot of the importance of both sort of a spiritual awareness uh, that we can bring to our work and make it invest in our day-to-day lives and work and, and try to make it more meaningful and to try to use that to build communities because the communities around us that we participate in and that we build are really uh, the things that are going to outlast any of our jobs, they're the things that we're going to carry forward, and they're the, way, they're the ways that we take care of each other. So I'm really glad that we're talking about all of this. I mean, that's really why I'm here. So thank you. And my eyes have not been dry for 40 minutes, just so everyone knows. Yeah. Well, my if I um, can ask people one thing, if I can have a call to action, then I would say I would really like people to go talk to a coworker to just ask a question about your work environment, about how things get done at your company. But just to start a conversation around that and see what you get from that, uh, what you learn from those kinds of interactions. All right. Well, thank you very much, Audrey. This has been a really wonderful, enlightening conversation, and it's been really great having you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm so happy I could be here. And uh, everybody out there listening, thanks, and we'll talk to you all next week. 